Because, I mean, I believe in life, you know, do no harm, but take no shit. So if you're trying to be racist to me, I'm not going to take your shit. You know, I just, I'm not, I don't have to. So I will always say something. That was PR firm owner, Temi Adamalukun. Welcome to Story San Francisco. I'm your host, Jeff Hunt. This one's a little longer than most of our podcasts, but for a good reason, I think. In this episode, Temi picks up where she left off in part one. She founded Pembroke PR when she was pregnant with her first kid. The firm was able to manage the transition to shelter-in-place rather well. Temi then talks extensively about the movement for racial and social justice, and in that vein, her involvement with Represent Collaborative. You all should really check out Repco, as it's known. Lots of great content centered around BIPOC folks. Visit their site, representcollaborative.com. Follow them on socials, and please, donate if you're able to. Here's Temi. So when we first moved here, I wasn't crazy about it. I was still very attached to London and the pace of London and the scale of London, the variety of London and San Francisco at that point in time didn't really offer any of those things. Um, I felt San Francisco was small, was slow, not particularly diverse, not a lot of range and stuff. Um, I also noticed that nightlife here was very focused on restaurants, which is great, but there wasn't anything else. Um, so definitely the first few years of San Francisco, I was like, yeah, it's okay, but I didn't love it. So my husband was on a three-year program. Two years, we were in San Francisco, and as I said, I was in and out. And then back to Europe for a year. So he had to, that's what I was saying about the architecture thing. You do oh, right. school, and then you work, and then back to school. Right. So he did a year at a firm in Paris. Okay. So I was between, and this was great, this, I was between Paris and London. Yes. Um, for that year, which was really good fun. I'd always, I'd, you'll hear this in what I say, but I love learning. I love opportunities to learn. I've always been obsessed with jewelry. And there's a gemological institute of America called the GIA. Mm-hmm. And their school was really close to where we lived in London. So I did a program to learn how to be a gemologist. Okay. Which was great fun. Really enjoyed it. Um, I did think for a while about designing jewelry but realized it wasn't really something I wanted to spend a lot of time doing because you spend a lot of time in a dark lab looking at stones through a loop and I was like yeah I need sunshine (laughs) Um, so then we came back to San Francisco and that's when I got my job and we were married I got my job Um, did that for a while and then you know just after getting married we started talking about having a child and the thought process was very much we'll have our kid here because we're already here and then after having a kid, we'll move back to London. Like very much was the case, we'll move back to London to be closer to family. Mm-hmm. But that's what I was saying. Like the second thing that really changed the trajectory of life for me in San Francisco was having my son because mm-hmm. right from when I was pregnant, I just, there was a couple, there were a couple of women that I knew beforehand, Katie Hintz. She was West Coast editor of Refinery29. So Katie and I had met through work. We'd hung out a bit through work. Her son is five months older than mine. Okay. So she was pregnant first. They were born in the same year. So she was pregnant first. And then I was pregnant. She was like, oh my God, we're pregnant at the same time. And she had a couple of friends who were also pregnant. I had a couple of other friends who ended up being pregnant. So we all ended up spending a lot of time together. Erin Farrah being one of those people that I ended up spending a lot of time with. Mm -hmm. And there's probably about 10 of us that had babies within five months of each other. Most of us left jobs to set up our own companies. Mm -hmm. So interior design, editorial, 
PR, just a lot of creative things. Mm -hmm. So it was just this really interesting mix. We all lived in Potrero Mission Nui, so we spent so much time. It would be like every Friday, we'd hang out in Dolores Park with the babies. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and it was just amazing. For me, that was such a game changer because I had such a strong community that I was seeing on such a regular basis. People that I kind of knew, but hadn't really spent any time with, but having a baby slows you down. And there was so much commonality in our experience between being new business owners and being new moms that we'd be talking about, you know, blowouts and budgets at the same time. <laughs> it was kind of amazing. <laughs> I'm also thinking um, that expression, it takes a village, that must have been a, a really good and grounding feeling for you to have that little community. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, it was. And as I said, it definitely changed the trajectory of life for us in San Francisco because I felt really settled mm -hmm. after that. So um, when you had your son, were you all still living in Petrero? Petrero, yeah. Okay. Is that where you live now? Nope. Oh, okay. Do you want to talk about yeah, your move? Sure. Yeah. Um, so we'd actually bought our place in Petraria. So we were there, which is part of the reason why we were there for so long. So we were there for 10 years. And two and a half years ago, sold it and moved over to Laurel Village. So we're renting, oh. trying to figure out what our next step is going to be. Okay. But um, we're yeah. We're neighbors. Yeah. I live at Gary Masonic. Okay. Yeah. I we do all my shopping neighbors. at Kalmar. <laughs> I love Kalmar. It's great. It's so old Kalmar. school. It feels like you're yeah. stepping into the 50s when you walk in there. Yes. But it was also really nice to be in a completely different part of town. I hadn't spent much time over there. I didn't really know it. Our place, as is sometimes the case in San Francisco, sold really quickly. We didn't have a lot of time to find something. I must have gone to see. 50 rentals in the space of two weeks and I really wow. loved where we are now. I love yeah. the location. Yeah. I It's really central. It's really easy to get around and also most importantly it felt really different to yeah. Petraria because I definitely was like really craving something different So I was feeling a bit fed up with San Francisco. Just a bit bored of it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when we moved I was like, oh yeah, I love it again. Does your son love the train at Calmar? Sorry. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. The little train that goes round at the top. Yeah. And also um, proximity to Golden Gate Park and the Presidio right during Shelter in place for us was such a blessing. Um, I want to hear about Pembroke. Sure. So um, I left the Flower and Water team when I was pregnant. It was on my birthday. I was six months pregnant, which was actually great timing. Some people wonder if that's really difficult time to set up a business. It actually turned out to be the perfect time to set up a business because I had a deadline by which I had to get yeah, the business up and running. <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, so I had to keep things moving. Whereas right. I think if I wasn't on some kind of time crunch, it's really easy for these little things to end up taking a really long time. But you know, I had to what register the company. What are you talking about? Me? No. <laughs> but you know, little things like I had to register a company name, Absolutely. I had to open the business bank account, I had to get like the name, the logo, the URL, all those mm -hmm. things. I had to get everything lined up and ready. And I did. Um, because I was under a deadline and um, luckily through just word-of-mouth connections I was able to sign my first client which was a chocolate company a local chocolate company and that was a really great experience for me because it just also gave me a lot of time and space to figure out this new motherhood and new business owner thing one thing I did do before I left my job which was really useful um, I had as many coffee dates as I could with other people that owned PR companies to hmm. ask them what to do and what not to do because I figured it would save me a lot of time. And I and just through doing that, I was actually able to make some great friendships that I still have now. Awesome. Um, and what I found is a lot of people who are business owners are very happy to share their experience with someone who's starting out. So if you ask for help, they're probably quite happy to give it because right. everyone I emailed, some of whom I'd met, some of whom I had met, everyone definitely responded. And I think out of the six people I emailed, I met with five of them and oh, wow. one of them just couldn't make it in the window of time I had available. But yes, yeah, so I got a lot of really helpful advice about how to structure my company. 
how to go about setting up contracts and just how to handle the finance side of things. Um, so that definitely made it easier. And so I had the first few months working with a chocolate company, figuring out how to be a mom and look after my tiny little baby, who's now a giant. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, he's chin height on me and he oh, just wow. turned seven. Oh, wow. And I'm not short. No, you're not. Wow. <laughs> I'm five, six for listeners. Um, yeah. And... So I had the company, I had my baby, and just slowly but surely, it was always my plan actually to grow the company in tandem with my son getting older, so mm. as he needed me less, I'd be able to do more work and take on more clients. And I've been really fortunate, that's pretty much what's happened. So seven years in, we're a team of three, um, and we've got a great roster of clients, largely in the design space, and um, just started working with our first tech client as well, so that was something new, really exciting. And yeah, I absolutely love it. Did you have an office before I did. all this? Where yeah, was it? Or yeah, so where? I did. So when we were still living in Was Pichero, or is? Did you was. Was. Where was when, it? When um, we were still living in Pachara, I was in a shared office space with one of my friends who also had a baby around the same time. Katie's an interior designer. Okay. Um, so I think we moved into the shared office space when our kids were around two. Okay. So that was great to get out of the house and get off the dinner table and have a dedicated space to work. Absolutely loved it. So I was in that space for about three years. And then when we moved across town, I let go of the office space. Yeah. And then I was working in a co-working space, Canopy, on Fillmore, which I absolutely loved. Mm -hmm. But then COVID hit and I was like, I'm not going to be back in a shared space for a while. So yeah. I let go of my membership, which was a bummer. Yeah. But I just think it's also unpredictable right now. So I have no idea right. when I'm going to be back in a shared space. So I'm back yeah. on a desk at home. How was the transition? Do you want to speak to um, your business up to and now through the pandemic? Sure. COVID for me, really showed people who they are mm -hmm. in every sense, good and bad. Mm -hmm. And what I saw very early on was people tended to fall into one of two patterns very quickly. Either they went into manic over productivity and they're like, I need to just do what I can that's within my control. And because I can control it, I'm going to control every single square inch of this thing. Oh, or you had people that were like catatonic. They're like, I can't do anything. Helpless. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. The sky's falling down. I can't deal. Right. Um, I'm definitely the manic of a productive type. And I don't think either one is good or bad. They're just different. Cope their coping. Yeah. Mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. And that is definitely how I tend to cope. So I remember very clearly because my mom was, so we'd been in Tahoe in February. My mom came to visit from Nigeria. She was with us for three weeks. So she got here mid-February. And because my mom's in her 70s, we were paying a lot of attention to this news about this thing called COVID because she's high risk mm -hmm. because of her age. Mm -hmm. So we just started paying a lot of attention very early on. I remember the first week of her trip, we still did a lot of things as normal. You know, one of the fun things we did was we took the ferry across to Larkspur with my yes. son after a basketball game, which was super fun for yes. all of us. And Marin County Mart's just a great place to be as a family. Mm -hmm. But then the second week of her trip, I canceled everything. Cause mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I don't think, you know, I had yoga classes booked, you know, a trip to the cinema, you know, shopping and stuff. But I was like, yeah, mom, I don't think we can do any of those things. I'm not really sure what's happening with COVID. Mm -hmm. So we were paying a lot of attention really early on. Mm -hmm. And so the last few days of her trip, I remember very clearly on the Friday before she left. So this is probably around the 10th of March or so. The Friday, we were told by my son's school that they were going to be closing. So I was like, right, okay, we don't know how long this is going to happen. Um, and I remember going out and getting a desk straight away because I was like, I'm going to need a desk because I'd been working on the dinner table and I was like, yeah, if my son's going to be with me and if potentially my husband's going to be home, we can't all work on the dinner table together. Mm -hmm. So I went and got a desk that was big enough for my son and I to share. 
and then my mum left San Francisco on the Tuesday and Tuesday night was when the shelter in place the order day. she in. left the day that it happened yeah wow yeah um, good timing I guess yeah so um, because we'd been paying attention so early I felt that actually ended up giving us a bit of a heads up on the situation because like if my mum wasn't here we wouldn't have been paying attention right. I know that for sure it just wouldn't have seemed like that big a deal wouldn't have seemed that relevant that early on right, but right. because she'd been here we're paying a lot of attention so I just went into manic overproductive mode you know got a desk set up for myself and my son school took a day um, and then by Wednesday the remote learning program started for us yeah, so school closed on Friday. By Wednesday, the remote learning program had started. Chaos crazy, obviously. Um, I changed all my meetings to be virtual meetings. So, you know, I was straight onto the Zoom thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that I barely slept in the first two weeks of this, to be honest. I was so anxious, so nervous, not knowing what's going on. Same as everyone else, but that was what happened for me. Mm -hmm. But I think what ended up happening after living in this manic way for two weeks which is unsustainable for anyone under the best or worst of circumstances the good thing is that it forced certain patterns into place mm -hmm. really quickly mm -hmm. and those are the same patterns we have now um so when shelter when my son's school closed i ordered an exercise bike i used to go mm. to the gym like three four times a week and i was like i can't handle a stressful situation without the ability to exercise right. i'm gonna get an exercise bike and i got my son very clear on like his routine you know so we'd like get up in the morning breakfast take him out for a little walk just to get a burst of fresh air mm -hmm. you're gonna and put then, on pants kid yeah yeah <laughs> you know we'd get dressed and just trying to keep things as close to a semblance as like a normal routine as possible right. Right. and that really helped and that to be honest for me made it all so much more functional we had a separate workspace from my husband there was a door in between so noise wasn't an issue and I was able to manage all my meetings. I was able to manage my team. I was carrying a lot of weight for my clients who were also panicking about their businesses. Right. But what I saw very quickly was the people that were able to really kind of knuckle down and focus on what they needed to do and ride the wave mm -hmm. are those that came out on mm -hmm. top because it was stressful for everyone. It was chaos for everyone. Right. But if you had the ability to just really get your work done you came out okay so for me Pembroke was one of the companies that actually came out okay because there's so many things that we had in place before so many relationships we built that we just made stronger we spent more quality time speaking with our clients because now you can do it on zoom so you can of course you can meet with clients like more frequently so yes. that was also easier so I definitely made sure I was communicating a lot with my clients just making sure they knew that I could help them as much as they needed with messaging mm -hmm. I do a lot of work in the interior design space so one of the things that was really important for the clients that had photo shoots that had already happened, they were now ahead of the curve because a lot of other designers didn't have shoots ready. So the publications were scrambling for content and we had this beautiful content ready to go. Nice. So that actually created a great dynamic for a lot of my clients where we could actually get ahead of the curve. And um, yeah, to be honest, for us as a company, work has been great. Awesome. It's been really good. So I'll start with talking about my thoughts on racial justice. Absolutely. So I referenced it slightly early on in the interview that the proximity and time of the Mike Tyson case, the Tupac case and the OJ Simpson case, and just to me at the time how it seemed like the American judiciary system was out to bring down the three high profile black men. Um, and around the same time, a bit younger actually, when I was about 14, I think that was one of the first times I had what could be um, considered as like a racist experience. So um, my brother and I, we lived in a nice part of London. Um, my brother and I were literally outside our front door 
and these two police officers were walking past and they were like, oh, what are you doing here? And I was like, and it was really interesting because I think I was about 14, so my brother was about 17. And, you know, I'd heard about this thing called racism, but to be honest, I lived a pretty sheltered life. Mm -hmm. My parents did a really good job of making sure that we always felt strong and powerful as who we are. So I'd never really directly experienced this thing called racism. So okay. it took me a couple of minutes to understand. I was like, oh, you know, what do you mean? We just stepped out of our front door. And they were like, oh, how can you live in a neighborhood like this? And I was like, what? I was so confused. And then I noticed very quickly, my brother's response was very different to mine. Mm. And I was like, why are you so calm? Mm. Why are you so calm? Why are you being so quiet? <laughs> yes. yeah. And he was just like answering their questions, being very polite and keeping his answers short. And I was there like trying to mouth off and he was trying to tell me to shut up. And I was like, why are you telling me to shut up? Why are they asking us why what? we live here? Yeah. <laughs> you were indignant and he was doing the like, yeah. tenant. To yeah, so basically, basically he'd like, had the talk yeah. from my parents. Right. He'd had the talk, so he knew right. to, that if he was ever in a situation with the police, that he just had to listen and just follow instructions, not make any sudden movements, don't talk back. Whereas for me, because I'm a woman, my parents thought they had more time right. before they needed to have the talk with me, so they hadn't done it with me yet. But obviously, the police left us, and my brother explained. He was like, yeah, I think you need to have a chat with mum and dad. And I was like, what, what? And yeah, so my parents explained, and I was like, oh my God, this is terrible, this is horrifying, I don't understand. But obviously, you do understand. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the beginning. And then um, the three high-profile legal cases I mentioned, and... Um, and then I'm going to jump over a lot of time. And, That's you know, to be honest, I haven't experienced a lot of racist interactions in my lifetime, which is very fortunate. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously, I'm well aware of the fact that they do happen. And as far as I'm aware, they do seem to happen with more frequency to men. Mm -hmm. So as a mom of a boy, this is something I'm very aware of, right. how to raise him in a way that he always feels strong and powerful in his body. I mentioned earlier on um, one of the best things for me about being Nigerian and growing up in such close proximity to Nigeria and our culture by regular trips there was I had that steel core of confidence that I feel Nigeria gives people. Mm. Um, and so I always felt very confident in who I am in my race, in my identity, because I never felt there was anything I couldn't do because I'm black. So being black never felt like a obstacle to okay. anything I was trying to do um, and then fast forward to May right. this year right. I was aware of the Black Lives Matter movement obviously I'd read I don't watch the videos I think I saw the Eric Garner video and I was so horrified mm -hmm. by it I was like I can't believe there's actually a video of a guy being killed right. that's circulating on the internet I didn't understand and I still don't really understand why people have to show shit I mean I understand the videos create impact but I'm like you wouldn't believe it happened if there wasn't a video or what right. so I don't watch the videos I never will watch another one of those videos I think they're so deeply traumatic to see that type of thing happening so what I, I would always read about these stories. I remember Tamir Rice, because he was 12. I remember reading about Ayanna Jones and her particular story, she was seven. And Ayanna Jones, she was in a house, um, asleep on the sofa with her grandmother, and the police raided the apartment. It was the wrong home. The police raided the apartment, and when they burst in, they saw her grandmother make a sudden movement, as you would do someone burst through the door at midnight, and you've got a kid asleep on your lap. They thought the grandmother was reaching for a gun, so they opened fire, and they ended up shooting seven-year-old Ayanna in the head. So, you know, we have so many of these stories happening, and then May, we're two months into the pandemic, George Floyd. Mm -hmm. um, 
Christian Cooper, same week, mm -hmm. and the uprising that created with the Black Lives Matter movement and the swell of attention. Um, there's a writer, Ijoma, that said it was the perfect storm because everyone was at home so much more reliant on social media. And so the videos of Christian Cooper initially, but mostly George Floyd, had the power to spread and be seen by more people than at any other time in history. So it's almost like it had to happen at that time. Um, and then what happened for me very quickly, um, Erin and Katie. Katie owns Mother Magazine. Erin was editorial director, so she reached out to me very early on. And she was like, would you want to write something? She, she'd seen some of my posts on social media, and she was like, would you want to write something mm -hmm. for Mother Magazine? And I was like, yeah, I have some things I'd like to say. So I wrote a piece that ended up going viral. Mm. Um, uh, it was a pretty powerful piece, strongly worded piece, and you know it's very much the context of how racism is perpetuated in children. Mm. Because I realized very quickly that we all have to, it's a big battle, it's a lifelong battle. Mm -hmm. If you try and fight the battle at large, it's too much. So you have to pick your lane. And I realized very quickly, I'm so well connected in the mum community, female entrepreneur community. I was like, I'm going to use my platform to speak to mums who are raising children that are either going to be helping or hindering racism when it comes to my son. Right. Because if we can make it personal like that, it's so much more relatable for Absolutely. people. So around the same time I wrote the piece for Mother, I was also asked to speak on a panel. There's an organization of mums based in New York called Hey Mama. Okay. And they had me on a panel with Jodie Patterson and Tabitha from the Women's March and Sarah, the founder of the Women's March. Um, and they were just asking us about how white privilege plays out in children and parenting. Mm -hmm. And I shared a story on that panel and again in my mother piece that a lot of people have found very impactful. And it happened beginning of this year. So I mentioned a while ago that I used to go to the gym frequently pre-COVID. Right. And I was always very quick in and out. You know, I'd get in, have my workout, grab my stuff, leave. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a day I was running downstairs to get my stuff from the locker room. And as I walk into the locker room, there's a little girl who's about five, with her mom getting ready for swim class. And the little girl looks at me and she turns to her mom and she goes, oh, mummy, she's staff, as in, do I work there? And I had been in a real rush up until that point, but I was like, oh, now I have all the time in the world for this conversation. So I just stood there and I waited to see what the mum was going to say. And the mum was like, oh, you know, did you say that because she's wearing a badge? I wasn't wearing a badge. I thought, what badge is she talking about? So I just waited to see if she was going to say anything else, and she didn't. So I was like, mm, yeah, I'm not going to let you lie in my presence um, about something that is so impactful for so many people. So I bent down to eye level and I said to this girl, oh, you know, as we can both very clearly see, I'm not wearing a badge. And if there was anything that created any confusion, perhaps it's my membership card on the chair next to me. But if you have a look, it's exactly the same as your mom's. And I grabbed my stuff and I left. And um, I've always felt the ability to speak up in situations like that, as long as there's no like, risk of personal danger. Mm -hmm. I've always felt the ability to speak up. I think partly the way I grew up, just in terms of the context of my culture, the society, the school I went to, all these things that were just ultimately for me very empowering experiences. Mm -hmm. And I'm also very aware of the fact that in a lot of situations like this, a lot of people don't have the confidence to respond. They right. don't have the language 
to respond. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to say it. So sometimes they might end up saying nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I've always felt, I guess in a sense, a degree of responsibility to say something in these situations. Right. I'm like, yeah, I can speak to you comfortably. Especially when the mom missed the teaching moment yeah. for her own kid. Yeah. 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 Because, I mean, I believe in life, you know, do no harm, but take no shit. So if you're trying to be racist to me, I'm not going to take your shit. You know, I just, I'm not, I don't have to. So I will always say something. So that definitely came through in the panel discussion I was part of. It came through in the piece I wrote for Mother Magazine. Um, there's a very popular blog called Cupcakes and Cashmere. I had a few posts on my social media. Around this time, I was gaining a lot of traction on social media because I was posting so much about um, social justice, racial justice, and especially about how this relates to children because mm -hmm. I think people hadn't really thought about the fact that racism is taught to children through learned behavior. And I do feel that very strongly. Amy Cooper didn't wake up being Amy Cooper in her late 30s. Right. It was a series of misteachable moments as a child, mm -hmm. a series of moments where, you know, her hand was pulled to move her away from the black guy on the street or mm -hmm. the mom like closing the door or locking the door or, you know, the dad shutting the front door really quickly and double bolting it and parents saying things. It's through those learned behaviors. And it's white supremacy yeah. perpetuating itself. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's the not seeing people of color in your line of vision and what you're doing. And just these moments that children pick up on that parents or guardians aren't necessarily aware that they're sending such a strong message. Right. Um, so my whole approach was very much to highlight this to people, parents, moms, caregivers, and just show that it actually does kick in really early and to really focus on how you can empower your child, your white child, your non-black child, to be an upstanding ally to my black child and to not allow your kid to either be the aggressor or to just be a bystander. What I mean when I say a bystander versus an upstander, bystander is someone that might be aware something's wrong but they're not doing anything about it and upstander is a kid that's like, don't do that, mm -hmm. stop it, mm -hmm. don't say that, that's mean. Whatever it is, whatever the language that is age appropriate for your kid, teach your kid to say something, teach right. your kid to use their body to block a negative interaction. Kids understand it, it's really basic, it's really straightforward for kids. You just have to teach them it's wrong and you have to teach them that they have the power to do something about it. I feel very strongly that there is an ability for our generation to stop it with the next generation through teaching them. So we just have to take that on and do it. So um, I mentioned the popular blog that reached out to me after um, there was communication back and forth between me and I think it was the editor of the blog because um, we followed each other. Well, I followed her on Instagram and I think she, I can't even remember how it all happened. But anyway, I ended up being in touch with the editor of this blog called Cupcakes and Cashmere. And I ended up writing a piece on their blog about um, 10, why your child needs to have books with black protagonists. And I had a list of 10 different books. And this was a really popular piece on their blog that performed really well. I'm actually, I've just submitted a follow-up piece. So there's a second piece that's about to come out for slightly older children, older books. Awesome. Um, but through that, I ended up doing an Instagram live interview with a woman called Elizabeth Holmes, who I'd been following for a while. She's a royal enthusiast. She's a prolific writer. She's got a book coming out soon. She's a journalist. She's been with Wall Street Journal. And she's just like really smart, really savvy. I love her take on current affairs. I've always loved her take on what's going on with the royal family. Um, and so she reached out to me to do an Instagram live interview. And I was like, um, yeah, sure. So that was really fun. I loved Elizabeth's energy. We had a great conversation. The video 
ended up being seen about 25,000 times. Oh, wow. One of the people that saw the video was a producer for ABC. Okay. <laughs> And then um, my husband and I and our son, we actually went on a road trip in an RV. I'm not a camper in general, so it took a bit of convincing, <laughs> namely COVID, to get me in an RV for a road trip. But off we went, and there was one morning, we were about to head out on our bikes. My phone rang, and I was like, ah, it's probably a sales call, but just in case, let me answer it. And it was ABC okay. asking um, when they could schedule an interview with me to talk about raising anti-racist children. I was like, oh yes. my God, I can't believe that just happened. Yep. But yeah, sure. Um, we initially tried to schedule the interview for when I was away, but I was like, it is so stressful trying to find a spot that has good Wi-Fi, that right. has good light, where I can get on camera. So they were really patient, which was amazing. So we actually did the interview when I got back home. So I got interviewed by Reggie um, for the lunchtime news section, mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing. And again, a lot of visibility mm -hmm. um, created through that. And um, Aaron, This was all over the summer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so alongside everything else, so that's the thing that I think is also really important to note because a few people have asked me, they're like, oh, does your PR firm now specialize in social justice? I'm like, no, we're still doing the work no. that we've been doing all along, but I'm just doing the social justice and racial justice stuff as well. Yeah, exactly. Why, can't, my free time. why can't you do both? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Erin and Danny have always been very civic-minded. I've always been really aware of that with them. I've always loved that about them. They've always been very open with how they speak about race, and I love that, and how they speak about race to their children as well, because I think, you know, over time I've definitely noticed, and I've always been aware of this, that white people in general don't like to talk about race. I'm right. like, yeah, you kind of have to. Yeah. <laughs> you can't not talk about it's, the elephant in the room. It's very much a luxury. Yeah. And part of the, yeah. The yeah, the I mean, it's part of the problem. The privilege and the it's problem. Where the problem begins, Absolutely. to be honest. You have to address it. You have Absolutely. to teach kids what the differences are. This whole notion of being colorblind is just rubbish. Children yes. can see color, yep. and it's actually harmful and damaging to deny Absolutely. an entire race of people. So just teach your children about color and equip them with the language to have the conversation. There's nothing a child can't ask, mm -hmm. you know, so just answer their questions and honor those questions. Because I think part of the problem with children as well is if they ask difficult questions about race, parents are like, oh, shush, we don't talk about that. Right. So what is that teaching your kid? Right. Um, and if you can teach them racism, you can teach them its opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is actually really important to know, a lot of people through this whole process of the Black Lives Matter movement this year and all my speaking opportunities and just my, the engagement um, I've had around this topic, a lot of people see racism as like a big, bad, scary, overt thing. But most commonly, racism is covert, it's systemic, it's not violent. It's just the denial of existence of an entire race of people. It's their preferential treatment. It's a sustained white supremacy and it comes out in these small insidious ways. So it's not it's not just Derek Chauvin. Right. It's right. everything that leads up to that. Right. It's all the people asking about George Floyd's criminal record. Right. It's all of that. Okay, so it's not just the one most violent act that is the apex. Mm -hmm. It's everything that creates the mountain before you get to the apex mm -hmm. too. So I think that's really important to be aware of. So back to Erin and Danny. So um, they've always been very much at the forefront of social justice in general, but then also particularly racial justice. I noticed Danny um, right from when um, my son was born and... Um, you know, he developed an interest in stuff like skateboarding. Danny would send me posts from skateboarders, black skateboarders on Instagram. And he'd always say, oh, I know representation really matters. And I always loved that because nice. I'm not 
not so interested in skateboarding, so I wouldn't <laughs> necessarily be able to right. find skateboarders unless I spent a lot of time looking. So to have this person in my life that would just send me stuff was amazing. Right on. Um, and Erin was always interested in like having the conversations. And when she was working at Mother Magazine, she always made sure both of them, Erin and Katie at Mother Magazine, always make sure that they had a diverse network of women that they were reaching out to as subjects for interviews and profiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always noticed it. So towards the end of summer, Erin organized a caravan protest and she yes. called me. Um, Out in the, in, uh, close to where you live? Yeah, we Golden live. Gate Park. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so she called me before, about right quite early on when she was thinking about it she just called me to see if i wanted to be involved she's like no pressure but i know you've had so much to say and you really utilize your voice i wanted to check if you wanted to be involved at all or not and i thought about it and i was like erin thank you i love you for asking me but no because i'm just tired but i will be there um and so what i actually ended up doing was i went on my bike which was actually amazing because there was so many cars yeah it was so slow moving for people driving but being on a bike i got to see everything and i remember i was at the kickoff point with her danny and the kids as they were like getting ready and erin had the whole thing like really well organized she had like radio wave a radio frequency that she was speaking to everyone through and i was like oh i'll just stand at the kickoff point and see all the cars going past and once it gets to the end and i'll ride my bike home i stood there for 40 minutes i still couldn't see the end and i was like okay i'm gonna start riding my bike along so i rode through the richmond up until it got to the point where i could turn off and head home Mm -hmm. but it was really empowering to see a friend of mine had started a movement just with an idea that it become this big movement that had over 500 cars involved and if you think about it a lot of the cars were cars full of families mm-hmm. so it was parents showing children that they can stand up and do something in a way that's safe to, in a time of covid right. but each car would also have had four people so when you think about that 500 cars four people a lot of people were aware yeah. and the other thing that i saw that was really amazing to see everywhere on the route there were loads of people out on the sidewalks or hanging out the windows with signs up and support support. yeah so um that's uh something Erin did I can't remember when it was I think it was towards the end of summer maybe August yeah I think it was August Mm -hmm. and then a few a couple of weeks later um she reached out to me again telling me about an idea she had for um a collaborative storytelling group that was going to focus on telling stories about social justice and racial justice and this is a conversation Erin and I had had many times over the years I'm a PR professional she's been an editorial for a long time Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I've consistently said is I feel black people are held to a different standard a much higher standard in terms Mm. of editorial coverage it's almost like um, you will read so many stories about white people doing you know somewhat interesting probably a little bit mediocre things but to read a story with a black subject they have to be doing something exceptional right and while it's great to have those exceptional stories it's really important to have those exceptional stories be inspiration i also want to see a lot of stories about in between Mm -hmm. what happens before people get there talk about these people as they start doing the thing they're doing don't wait for them to be verified successful right let's get more stories floated up to the top let's get more stories published and i've always felt this and this is something that i've always worked towards in terms of the work that we do at Pembroke as well. So Erin had this idea to create a storytelling collaborative 
focus on um, racial justice and she asked me if I'd be interested in being part of the executive board. I said yes immediately. Nice. And she's put together a pretty phenomenal board. So it's also been great for me to get to meet everyone else. So Shaquille Heath, I knew before because she looks after communications for the Fine Art Museum, so the De Young mm -hmm. and the Legion of Honor. And mm -hmm. I've always loved the fact that she's got that job because people just don't expect a black woman to be working with the Fine Art Museums and she right. does such a good job. And then Sean, I met through Erin putting us together. And then Zola is in LA. And so Erin um, brought us all together. We've had a few meetings now, just talking about what we're doing, what we want to do. Akila Kadeh just joined the executive board. I know Akila, she lives in Oakland. She's a diversity, equity and inclusion officer. She's been doing a really great job. She um, has been doing workshops and she partnered with another company to create this daily text reminder of how to do something. Hmm. anti-racist every mm -hmm. day mm -hmm. and I signed up for like the first batch it was really interesting because it could be anything from like watch this video to read this to sign up for this and vote for this and did you do this so just prompts to get people thinking was to get that, a text was that the idea for five things Friday or, or um, the, the inspiration for that or slightly different but okay but connected Similar. just like giving people prompts and reminders of things to do yeah because right. I think we all need them yeah um, and there's no limit to how many prompts and reminders people can have because there's a lot of work to I do. I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so from the first meeting, Erin explained what her idea was and she wanted to create an opportunity for black subjects to have their stories told and Repco was going to own the stories and then also push them through through the main media outlets. So she also had, being an editor for so long, she had a really great list of amazing journalists and freelancers. Rolodex. Yes, exactly. Yes. Photographers, people that signed up to be part of this yeah. and it was a really extensive list, very impressive list. Mm -hmm. And so what she's done, she's created a password protected portal where the story ideas are and the people who are part of Repco, like the writers and journalists and photographers sign up to be assigned certain stories. Right. And so she was able to create so many really powerful, interesting stories, a lot of things that a lot of us didn't necessarily know that much about. Um, I was able to help her, so a really good friend of mine in London, Miss Han Harriman, as a photographer, and he very early on with the Black Lives Matter protests that were happening in London started photographing them and there's a very now famous picture that's currently being auctioned at Sotheby's mm. of a woman holding up a sign saying why is racism even a debate mm. that was his photo okay it went viral very quickly and he's taken all these beautiful photos. He ended up being interviewed by Sky News. He was interviewed by Christine Amanpour on CNN. I'm such a huge fan of Christine. So I was yeah. like, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. And then he ended up getting tapped by Edward Enethold to shoot a series of covers for the September issue of Vogue. Oh, wow. Very big deal. So I was able to put Aaron in touch with Miss Anne to get him interviewed for yes. Repco. So that was one of the first stories I helped her place. Yes. And then the job for all of us on the executive board is just to keep an ear and an eye out for interesting stories mm -hmm. to be told about black subjects. And Erin um, will find a way to get the stories out into the universe. So it's been a really wonderful experience. I love being part of the collective. I love the work Erin's doing. She's got so much energy, determination, drive for it. And she's just a great person to work with. I've worked with her so many times over the years. We're good friends. You know, our kids are friends. 
Um, they've had sleepovers. <laughs> <laughs> Remember those? Yeah, <laughs> seriously, way back when. Um, yeah, so it's just been a really great experience to be part of this with her. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I said earlier on, she was definitely one of the moms from 2013 when we all had our babies. So it's been really nice seven years later to be part of the new thing that she's creating and just the power momentum that has and just the capacity that has to really make a difference in terms of storytelling. Because again, I feel we need to normalize black subjects. And the only way you can normalize them is by having more stories told about them. And Erin's doing a really good job with that. That was Tammy Adamalakun. On the next episode of Storied San Francisco, we'll meet poet and author Alan Kaufman. Please join us for episode 39 next Tuesday. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is hosted and produced by me. Michelle and I have produced more than 130 episodes over the last three years, and you can find them all at our website, storiedsf.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you can like, comment, and share the stuff we put out. Find the podcast just about everywhere you can listen, including, most recently, BFF.FM's new podcast network. Please subscribe to stay up to date on all the content we publish. We love feedback, so if you have any, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay strong, stay safe, and stay healthy. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcasts.bff.fm. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever.